please could you tell us about your background and current roles and what led you to become involved in the neuromodulation field? So my background is that I did an MD and a PhD. Um, they were done separately, not as part of an MD-PhD program. So my PhD was in physiology with an emphasis on neurophysiology and actually systems neuroscience. And I started off with my PhD doing cerebellar studies. That's why studies around the cerebellum. Then I went on to do the MD and then a residency at uh, Johns Hopkins where I met a guy there who did a lot of work in the basal ganglia and systems neuroscience and his focus was on movement disorders. So I ended up writing a, a kind of a beginner's grant called the CID at that time and it was focused on the thalamus and how the thalamus is organized and particularly the motor thalamus as related to movement. That led us into um, actually some translational work looking at functional neurosurgical therapies for dystonia, Parkinson's, tremor, etc. And then that led me to more work, basically, uh, I ended up staying with this guy at Hopkins, wrote the CIDA, uh, traveled with him down to Emory, spent 17 years down there with him doing work on the basal ganglia. So I did a lot of basic science, preclinical and clinical work looking at the basal ganglia. And we started developing uh, a functional neurosurgical program at Emory doing lesion surgeries called pallidotomies. And then that led into the deep brain stimulation world uh, where we actually developed a deep brain stimulation program at Emory University. And we really did a lot of basic science work looking at the circuits and what was wrong with the circuits using an animal models of Parkinson's disease. Um, and then that led us into looking at how DBS worked by using these animal models first to understand what's the path to physiology, what's wrong in the circuit, and then how does DBS work to modify the circuit to improve symptoms. And that carried over, obviously, into the, in the human side. Um, that's kind of how it evolved, pretty much. I mean, it's, sometimes it's serendipity that you get involved in some of these things. Uh, but I probably through the mentors that I had, those are the folks that uh, really kind of taught me systems neuroscience and then the application from basic research taking that into the clinical side. So um, you're now director of the Neuromodulation Research Program at the University of Minnesota. What are the primary, primary focuses for the Neuromodulation Research Center? Yeah, so what happened when I was at Emory is we had the basic science side and we also had the kind of the clinical application side. When I was recruited to the Cleveland Clinic, um, we continued that focus, but it kind of expanded the, the basic science collaboration side so that we ended up with people that did modeling. For example, Cameron McIntyre was in our group. A guy named Mike Phillips did a lot of the imaging. Uh, Jay Alberts, a lot of kinematic studies, and of course we did the, the systems neuroscience part of that. That was a very good working model. So since I actually grew up in Minnesota, when the chair of the Department of Neurology position opened up, and I knew we had very good systems neuroscience at the University of Minnesota, I opted to come to the University of Minnesota when they offered me the job. While I was here, uh, I saw obviously that the model that worked in our, at Cleveland worked, would work here, and maybe even more so because the science at Minnesota is very diverse. So we have engineers, we have biomedical engineers, we have neuroscientists, straight neuroscientists, we have outstanding imagers, um, there are people doing things electrical engineering, aerospace engineering, all that really applies to the field of neuromodulation, uh, believe it or not. So when I got here, um, we initially formed a smaller group myself with uh, 
a guy named Ken Baker, who I recruited from the Cleveland Clinic, who has since returned to Cleveland, uh, and a guy named Matt Johnson, who's a biomedical engineer, who also did a fellowship with myself and Cameron McIntyre at the Cleveland Clinic. We started developing this group, and it has slowly grown quite dramatically, actually, uh, to involve a broad range of biomedical engineers, uh, aerospace engineers, neuroscientists, imagers, neurosurgery, uh, psychiatry, neurology. It's become very broad and very diverse. Uh, and so our questions are really dedicated at a couple things. Number one is, what's wrong in the circuits? in moving to sort of like Parkinson's disease, dystonia. And then how do we modify those circuits with deep brain stimulation? How does that work? How do we apply what we learn on the basic side to taking care of patients on the clinical side? For example, just with the imaging component alone, the work done with the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research and Noam Harrell, who runs a 7-Tesla MRI scanner, um, has helped us dramatically with our targeting. Um, and then our post-operative location of where our leads are placed to help us understand exactly what parts of these structures are important for different disorders and even for different symptoms within Parkinson's disease. Are there select sites, for example? There's other aspects of the basic science side where people look at different kinds of leads and how the different leads may offer advantages uh, or are there disadvantages. How do we design new leads that take advantage of what we understand, how DBS works, how the circuits malfunction? So there's a tremendously big group here, actually, in our neuromodulation research center that's really dedicated to one, understanding the pathophysiology, what's wrong in the circuit, and how do we use DBS to improve that, and then how are different ways to use DBS? You know, there's new leads now that have come out that are uh, directional, so we can, we can focus current in one direction or the other. There's sensing methods now where you can actually identify um, biomarkers in the form of neural signatures like local field potentials that might be characteristic of a certain symptom in Parkinson's or Parkinson's itself and use those neural signals to feed back into the pulse generator to modify the stimulation parameters to optimize the patient's movements. Those are a couple of big things uh, that are out there now that we're working on as well as the other people in the scientific community. So it's, it's a pretty remarkable center in my opinion. I think it's the best group of people I've ever been affiliated with. It's pretty diverse. Yeah, it sounds like an exciting place to be. Um, so can you tell us a little more about your work in Parkinson's disease um, and how your team is investigating the underlying mechanisms of the disease and how this could translate into new therapies for patients? Right, so there's, there's a couple things that we're doing. One is on the basic science side, so the questions we talked about, we use um, arrays, something called a Utah array and also something called a gray matter device. It allows us to record from populations of neurons across multiple cortical areas that we believe are involved in Parkinson's as well as the subcortical areas that we believe are involved in Parkinson's disease. And we can do all that, frankly, simultaneously, uh, which is a huge advantage manage in trying to understand the disease mechanism. So you can look at these populations of cells, understand how these areas are talking to each other, how that changes in Parkinson's disease, and how, frankly, how it's modified, modulated, if you will, with deep brain stimulation, because we can implant small leads in these structures in these animal models 
and get a good understanding of what's changing and what's going on, what's important to change, what's just an epiphenomenon about what's actually causal. Then you can move that into the human side where they actually have a very large grant. It's a Udall Center. There was not only in the United States. They're all focused on Parkinson's disease. And in that Udall Center, we are exploring similar things. So we're looking at what changes in the patient's brain when we're implanting a lead. We're actually recording from populations of cells deep in the brain. Um, we're then looking after the patient is implanted uh, at externalizing the leads, much like has been done in Europe for quite some time, and looking at how does the field potentials change when the patient's on or off medicine or when they're on or off stimulation, and that's what the biomarkers are, and then try to use those biomarkers in a closed-loop DBS system to optimize the patient's ability to move. So is there a certain time in these oscillations that we find to stimulate that would optimize the movement? Is there a better time to do that? Another question that's been developed uh, in a fellow named Peter Tass out of Germany actually developed a process called coordinated reset. This is a certain pattern of stimulation where you're stimulating across contacts at lower current intensities using certain patterns. Um, and we're looking at, we're exploring not only uh, Dr. Tass's approach, but also different ways of changing those patterns. And the reason we do that, and the reason he did that, is because you can actually induce some long-term benefits even after you turn off the stimulation in people's motor signs. Uh, and what we're looking at in the animal model is tuning those parameters in very different ways to optimize them, what gives us the best outcome. And then in the Udall Center, we actually have an, uh, an aim in one of the projects that will apply that then to patients. The other thing we're looking at is alternative targets in the brain to stimulate in. We think there are some better targets that can also improve things that don't improve right now, like gait, freezing of gait, for example. The point I'm trying to make is that the focus cuts across these basic science questions right into the human side, where you can do certain things on the animal side uh, that you can't do on the human side, but also the things on the human side you can't do on the animal side. And I think the combination of those two is pretty powerful. Yeah, definitely. And so what would you say are the biggest challenges in refining and developing new therapies for Parkinson's disease, and how could these be overcome? Uh, the biggest problems? I think, I think there's two. I think one is really identifying and understanding what are the biomarkers of disease, um, what actually is changing in the brain, uh, and where are these changes taking place, which of these are actually causal, or which of these are epiphenomenal. And even if they're an epiphenomenon, can we still use those biomarkers to improve uh, stimulation therapies? So I, I think one is just identifying the pathophysiology and understanding the circuits better. And then the second thing is being able to use that information to modify those circuits in, in a way that right now we're using deep brain stimulation. There are others that have talked about non-invasive approaches that might work. Um, there's other ways to probably stimulate. Um, I think refining the technology, this is, you know, the, the directional lead that just came out in the United States is the one from Abbott. But Abbott and Boston Scientific have both had them in Europe for some time now. So the question is, you know, that's the first technology advance we've had since DBS started. And, you know, we were later in the U.S. to get things going. I think publications in France back in the late 80s uh, with Ben Abid and Pierre Pollock, uh, those were done like back, I think, 1987. Uh, and that 
same weed concept was what was used in the U.S. until just this last year. So that's a long time without any technology uh, moving forward. I believe now what's going to happen is that we're going to get a lot a lot more competition with um, Abbott and Boston Scientific and Ventronic as well as other new companies that are coming out with new lead designs and new ways to, uh, to stimulate different parameters. You know, before that, all we could do was control which contact, our pulsation, our stimulation frequency, and how much current we gave. Now, we have these leads where we can direct the current. We're talking about closed-loop systems. Uh, there are probably going to be a variety of different uh, pulse generators that can do different kinds of patterns of stimulation. I'd love to see a three-dimensional lead at some point. Um, one of the biggest impediments, I think, that happens right now in the field is, is, is location of leads. People getting the lead where they want it. Um, there was just a recent publication that came out where they asked people doing this work, you know, where do you put your lead in the subthalamic nucleus? Because that's one of the more common targets. And the result was they put it everywhere in the subthalamic nucleus. Um, they put it in, and, and the problem with that is that we don't believe that you can put it everywhere and get the same benefit. There are different regions in these structures, some related to movement, some related to move, uh, to mood, and others related to like concentration, attention, memory, etc. So there's associated limbic and motor territories. And frankly, we think that there's very specific locations that are going to be better for the motor signs. Um, than others. And I think if you get into other regions, that you're going to get in trouble or not get a good benefit. Uh, and yet what we have in the state of the art is this, uh, this canvassing of people that do the work and no agreement on the location. So that's one thing. We have to, we have to know that. And I think many of us feel it's really important to get into sensor motor territory. Uh, on the other hand, if you get into sensor motor territory, probably the sweet spot is right next to the internal capsule, which is an area that can cause side effects. And even if you're in the sensor motor territory uh, and you can still increase the current as a little more than what you might if you're too close to the capsule, are you going to get into non-motor territories and is that going to cause problems? So we have to understand where the leads are, where the contacts are, where the tissues involved, how that affects the patient's outcomes, and then we need to be able to get there consistently. So those are things I think that are what seem like simple simple questions that should be answered by now, but really haven't been. Um, although a lot of us, again, believe that we feel there's certain locations and we, we feel we know where those are, um, obviously the community itself does not see it the same way. And I think, I think that's important, that that has to get solved. And people have to finally understand that this is a better location than, and X might be better than Y, for example. But that's not where we are. So I think, I think that, um, that's going to be important. Yeah, it's technology, right? Yeah. The, the new technology is going to be really critical, too. And I think that's, that's really going to come now because you've got three companies that are out there that are really all going to be competing in, to some degree. And competition drives uh, creativity, right? So hopefully that's what we're going to be getting in the next couple of years. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so um, next question, I guess you touched on this earlier, but how important is collaboration across disciplines in driving the field of neuromodulation forward? And how has this approach been harnessed at the Neuromodulation Research Centre? 
Well, you know, I think what we started to clearly see when I was at the Cleveland Clinic was that combining people with different levels of expertise was absolutely uh, beneficial. Um, having people here at the University of Minnesota that expertise, for example, that Dr. Rell brings into the imaging and what the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research brings in with these very large magnets, but also not just, just not how big the magnet is, it's uh, how well you can use those magnets and how you analyze the data. Um, so just the imaging side alone. Uh, then you go on to the engineering side, and I just give you an example. We have one of the people in our group is an aerospace engineer, and you say, "Why would you have an aerospace engineer in an area of systems neuroscience?" Well, because we're talking about closed loop systems, right? And this is exactly what you do with planes. It's closed loop. It's on autopilot. So, in order to develop closed loop systems, who better than an aerospace engineer to have on board? Who may not know uh, the physiology to start with, and may not know much about medicine. But then again, we in medicine don't know a whole lot about aerospace engineering or closed loop. So that's just a perfect example, I think, of how you can wed some very basic um, engineering questions to clinical. I think that uh, you know the, the imaging, the science, the neuroscience, the engineering side, the physiology side, the clinical side, um, the psychiatric side, the rehab medicine side, all of those things uh, really play a significant role. So, I mean, you can't do, in my opinion, in order to move it forward efficiently and effectively, as, as efficiently effective as you can, you need to have experts in all these different fields pulled together. Now, one of the things we you know, do at the Neuromodulation Research Center is that very thing. One thing I think would be great to do on a larger scale is bring together all of these centers like ours together, somehow like a, you know, multiple hubs connected somehow where the information is being shared. Because right now, when do you find all this out? Why do you find it out when you go to a meeting? Or you find it out when somebody publishes something? But, you know, a lot of things are being done by similar people, asking similar questions. And wouldn't it be nice if we could have a little bit more communication, not just across the United States, but certainly across uh, Europe, uh, Asia, for example. That would be great to see. And so, finally, how have you seen the field of neuromodulation grow in the past decade or so? And where do you hope that we'll be 10 to 20 years from now? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the first one's easy to answer. It's grown exponentially. Uh, we started with looking at deep brain stimulation for tremor and then it evolved into Parkinson's disease. And then it went off into dystonia. And then there was an HDE, well, there was an HD for dystonia, there was an HD for OCD, there was a depression trial. Someone was doing a trial on Alzheimer's. Uh, there are people looking at addiction. I would argue that any circuit disorder is potentially, mod can be, if, if we understand the circuit disorder, and I think a lot of these, a lot of these diseases are circuit disorders for one reason or another, whether it's due to some cells dying out or basically functional connection changes that aren't working well, uh, maybe some developmental problems that led to changes in the circuit, but they're all circuits. 
And the fact is that we can modulate circuits. The problem is we need to identify what parts of the brain are involved in those circuits and what nodes in the circuits are important and what do they do and that how does DBS change them and how can we change them for the better. Those are the questions that we have to ask. So I think I think it's it's grown exponentially in the last ten years. I expect it to go significantly above that in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And, and I think, frankly, it could be that we're going to be looking at, uh, potentially, you can even look at modulating and enhancing normal motor performance, enhancing memory. Um, could this move off into people that don't have disease just to enhance typical skill sets? Um, I don't know. Um, it's a little bit futuristic, I think, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen down the road. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, and that seems like a great point to end. So thank you very much for joining us today. No, you're very welcome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from NeuroCentral. You can find more podcasts, plus the latest news, free journal articles, interviews and opinion pieces from across neurology and neuroscience at www.neuro-central.com.